Welcome to Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In our last episode, we unpacked a subsection of Matthew known as the Beatitudes. Today, we will continue with the larger section of Matthew in which the Beatitudes occur, chapters 5 through 7. This section of Matthew has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. But since sermons today are usually given in churches or other religious communities, the word sermon, I think, leads us toward a misunderstanding of what's actually going on in the larger story. Rather than a sermon, this seems to be a speech given by a social revolutionary laying out his vision for a movement for a new society, especially in regard to laws and ethics. This vision takes into account their current situation. It draws on the culture and traditions of the people, and it moves them forward toward a new social order of greater equality, justice, and mercy. Today we will continue our examination of the Sermon on the Mount as this sort of speech, a revolutionary vision for a movement for a new society. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. last episode, I described chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew as the law for the movement for the new society, the new society proclaimed by John the Baptizer and Jesus. I also talked about three ways that one might view the relationship of this law to the law of Israel, often called the Torah. Probably the most common understanding among scholars today is that Jesus' words in chapters 5 through 7 merely articulate the way that Jesus interprets the law of Israel. In other words, like any great Jewish rabbi, he has his interpretation of Torah, and we get a good dose of it in these three chapters. However, these chapters can also be understood as an updating of the law of Israel that will move the people toward a new, more egalitarian society that will include foreigners, immigrants. In other words, a law for a radically egalitarian, transnational, inclusive society. Now, of course, neither an updating of the law nor the inclusion of foreigners and immigrants would actually be a new idea since the old law, the Torah, had its own updating in the book of Deuteronomy and had multiple provisions for the inclusion of immigrants. But, like in virtually all societies, there was also a strong tendency in Israel to exclude immigrants, to exclude foreigners, or treat them as second-class citizens. So, a new social order that includes them and gives them equal status could be understood as radical. 
And since the law set forth in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew is for a movement for a new society, one might understand that it is a new law with roots in the old law of the old society. That's three ways of understanding chapters 5 through 7, an interpretation of Israel's law, an updating of Israel's law, or a new law with roots in the old law of Israel. I think that any of these three ways of understanding these words of Jesus in these chapters has merit. It all depends on which angle you view them from. And I think this is an intentional rhetorical move. Matthew's Jesus is very clever. As we read his words from verses 17 to 20 of chapter 5, we might actually get the impression that Jesus is a strict literalist, an originalist, if you will, who will not stray from the letter of the law. But his statement actually gives quite a bit of wiggle room to allow for an updating of the law or even establishing a new law. Let's read the text. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your justice exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, on the one hand, Jesus says very clearly that the old law remains and that all should follow it. But he also talks about fulfilling the law. To fulfill the law is to bring it to completion, to finish it. If the law is finished, then a new or updated law can be born. By talking about fulfilling the law, Jesus can talk both about being faithful to it and going beyond it. And he talks about faithfulness to the law with typical Middle Eastern hyperbole, which we will get back to in a few minutes. Going beyond the law was an ancient rabbinic way of being faithful to the law. It was called building a fence around the Torah. The idea was to do more than the law requires so as to be in no danger of transgressing the law. As we will see, Jesus will proceed to give examples of the law and then instruct his movement to go above and beyond the law. So Jesus again merely follows rabbinic practice. But by going beyond the law, he changes it and ends up with a new or updated law, a radical law for a radically egalitarian society. One way that Jesus begins building a fence around the law is to say that unless your justice exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the new society. This is the first of multiple slams on the scribes and Pharisees by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is probably the hardest on the scribes and Pharisees of all four New Testament Gospels. In Luke, Jesus often opposes them, but also eats in their homes. In John, at least one Pharisee becomes a disciple of Jesus. 
Even Mark does not have quite the scathing critique of the scribes and Pharisees that Matthew does. But here's the thing. The author of the Gospel of Matthew was undoubtedly a scribe. And I think that he was also likely a Pharisee. Let me explain. The Gospel of Matthew is written in very polished Koine Greek. That level of literacy was scarce in the ancient world. Only a scribe could write like that. And most scribes were Pharisees. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, they are always grouped together, almost as one cohort. In the mind of the author of Matthew's Gospel, they seem to be pretty much the same group. So, if the author of Matthew was a scribe, which is certain given his writing ability, then he was also likely a Pharisee, seeing that he views them as pretty much the same group of people. But of course that raises the question, why does Matthew's Gospel criticize scribes and Pharisees so harshly? Well, later rabbinic writings written by people who were heirs of the Pharisaic tradition contain multiple criticisms of the Pharisees, even calling some of them hypocrites, as Matthew's Jesus does later in the story. It seems that self-critique was a feature of Pharisaism. Furthermore, while Pharisees were from the upper classes, they sometimes sympathized with the lower classes. One of them, a man named Zadok, even helped lead a rebellion in Galilee when Jesus was a child. Additionally, we know that some Pharisees joined the Jesus movement. For example, Paul of Tarsus, who wrote much of the New Testament, was a Pharisee. And as I mentioned before, the Gospel of John tells of one Pharisee, Nicodemus, who became a secret disciple of Jesus. So, we know that the author of Matthew was a scribe. We know that the author of Matthew thinks of scribes and Pharisees as virtually one group, and that scribes were usually Pharisees in the early first century. And given that Pharisees were often harsh critics of their own movement, and sometimes even sympathized with popular resistance movements, and that they were sometimes defectors from their own class, and that some of them joined the Jesus movement, it seems very likely to me that the author of Matthew was a Pharisee as well as a scribe. The reason he is so hard on Pharisees is that people who defect from their own class privilege and join radical movements often reserve their harshest criticism for their own group. But let's get back to the text. The next six verses provide us with the first example of Jesus building a fence around the law, of Jesus urging his disciples to go above and beyond the law so that they can create a new society built on justice and mercy. Let's read verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I tell you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to the judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar 
If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, this sounds a little strange. Jesus starts out talking about murder and ends up with a pre-court settlement about debt. And the admonition not to be angry sounds a little extreme, maybe a little unhealthy to modern Western ears. Anyone who is angry with their brother or sister is liable to judgment? The first thing we need to understand about this passage is its use of Middle Eastern hyperbole. Jesus was a Middle Easterner, and he speaks like one in Matthew. Now, we in the modern West use hyperbole in normal, everyday language. We might say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Everyone knows that the person saying that has no intention of eating a horse, nor could they eat a whole horse were it cooked and given to them to eat. We accept this manner of speech as exaggeration to make a point. So we are very familiar with hyperbole. But we are not familiar with Middle Eastern hyperbole. Western hyperbole would lose miserably in a contest with Middle Eastern hyperbole. In the Middle East, common speech regularly employs great exaggeration of the sort that a Westerner might find shocking. Abraham Mitri Rihbani, a Syrian immigrant to the U.S. in the late 19th century, perceived that Americans were misunderstanding parts of the Bible due to major cultural differences between the West and the Middle East. So he wrote a book entitled The Syrian Christ to explain Middle Eastern culture to Americans and how it affects the way the gospel texts are understood. In his book, he includes an illustrative example of Middle Eastern hyperbole in everyday life that might be shocking to Western ears. When a man or a woman wants to welcome you into their home, he writes, they might express their desire to be hospitable this way. You have extremely honored me by coming into my abode. I am not worthy of it. This house is yours. You may burn it if you wish. My children are also at your disposal. I would sacrifice them all for your pleasure. Now, it is understood that the person saying this does not want you to burn their house down nor will they sacrifice their children for your pleasure. The point is to lavish the guest with warm feelings of welcome and hospitality. In a similar way, Jesus uses this same sort of hyperbole to build a fence around the law and then to move toward creating a culture of reconciliation. The hearer is not meant to understand literally that being angry or calling someone names will result in criminal proceedings or eternal hell. The way that the passage ends gives us a clue as to what Jesus is getting at. When he urges quick reconciliation between Galilean peasants who might be in conflict, he warns them that if they don't reconcile, one of them may end up incarcerated. Specifically, in the hypothetical case that he provides, the person may wind up in a debtor's prison 
until they pay back every penny they owe on a debt, which might be never, since it would be hard for a common person, a peasant, to pay back a debt when they are unable to work because they're in prison. And that's precisely why Jewish law did not institute debtor's prison. Debtor's prison was a Roman practice. And the Greek word for penny in this passage is actually the word for a Roman quarter penny. In other words, Jesus is urging his peasant followers to settle their conflicts among themselves so that the matter does not get taken to the courts of the Roman occupying authorities. Not only would the Romans be harsh, like imposing a prison sentence for debt, but it only adds insult to injury to have matters between Jewish peasants adjudicated by the hated Roman occupiers. Jesus is using hyperbolic language, typical in his culture, to urge peasant solidarity in the face of a brutal Roman occupation. He is trying to create a culture of reconciliation and solidarity in the new society. Having addressed the need for a culture of reconciliation and solidarity in the new society, Jesus moves to the most fundamental division in any society, the division between men and women. While his words in this passage may sound puritanical to modern Western ears, in their original context, they were meant to safeguard women from male abuse. Let's read the text. Matthew 5, 27-32 You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, Jesus uses hyperbole that is shocking to modern Western ears. I'll come back to that. But let's address the substance of the teaching first. Jesus begins by reaffirming the prohibition against adultery already present in Israel's law. He then proceeds to build a fence around the statute by prohibiting male lustful gazing at women. In doing so, Jesus cleverly uses traditional patriarchal tradition to curtail male abusive behavior towards women. The first thing that we need to understand about this text is something that might not be evident to the modern reader, and that is that adultery was assumed to involve a married woman. Jesus is not addressing sexual relations with an unmarried woman, at least not yet. And notice that Jesus is speaking to men only at this point. He is addressing only male behavior. Jesus affirms a prohibition against men committing adultery. Now, this prohibition was originally meant to guard against one man offending another man by having sex with that man's wife. A wife was considered the property of her husband, so for another man to have sex with her would be understood as an act of aggression toward the husband, damaging that husband's property. Furthermore, while the man committing the act might be violating the law, culturally 
he might gain honor for his sexual conquest. The husband of the woman would lose honor, and the woman would get the worst of it. She would be horribly shamed, and would likely get divorced by her husband, leaving her in an extremely vulnerable position. If her family did not take her back, seeing her as damaged goods, she might end up on the street begging or doing sex work because there were few options for women to earn money at that time. So Jesus affirms Israel's prohibition against adultery and takes it a step further. Don't even look lustfully at women. In other words, don't even begin to put a woman in that position, because if you follow through on your desire, you may gain a twisted sort of honor, but she will suffer greatly. In creating this safeguard for women against male abuse, Jesus calls attention to the male gaze, something that has been written about in modern feminist literature. Now, you might be thinking, how could Jesus be talking about modern feminist ideas? That's impossible. And that's a good thought to have. We don't want to impute anachronistic modern ideas to a first century document. But, according to New Testament scholar Jerome Neary, the male gaze now highlighted in feminist writing, was recognized in ancient literature and appears to be what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Jesus here prohibits men from looking on women as sexual objects that exist for their conquest and gratification. Now, Jesus' talk about gouging out the eye and cutting off the hand is, of course, hyperbole, not to be taken literally. But Neri maintains that the word hand may be a euphemism for penis. In other words, it is preferable that a man have his penis cut off or be emasculated than to continue to oppress women with a lustful male gaze. Having curtailed male abusive behavior towards women, Jesus then takes on the issue of divorce. Again, to modern ears, this teaching may sound strict and puritanical, but in the original context, it again safeguards women from one of the worst dangers of a highly patriarchal society, arbitrary divorce. Let's read Matthew 5, 31-32. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, Jesus speaks to men only, blaming men for putting women in a tough position, thereby rescinding some of their legal power over women. And again, he begins with an existing law and then builds a fence around it. Now, some commentators on this passage have claimed that Jesus here contradicts the law by forbidding what it allows, but that depends on how you look at it. Is Jesus contradicting a law that allows men to easily divorce their wives, or is he building a fence around the legal institution of marriage? If you look at it from a pure legal standpoint, the law allowed men to easily divorce their wives, so Jesus rescinds that legal right of men and nullifies the law. On the other hand, if you follow the rhetorical trajectory of this speech in which Jesus promotes reconciliation, justice, and mercy for a new society, he is building a fence 
around the institution of marriage so that women can no longer be cast aside like unwanted property. And I am arguing that rhetorical logic, not strict legal logic, should guide our interpretation. In the Middle East, in a speech like this one, rhetoric would trump strict legal logic. Jesus is building a fence around the law by building a fence around the institution of marriage. Now, of course, today we might view divorce as sometimes necessary, even liberating for women and sometimes men. But in antiquity, divorce would bring great shame on a woman who might then be left destitute unless her family took her back. And here is the pertinent passage from Deuteronomy that constitutes a major part of the background for Jesus' update of the law. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 states that a man can divorce his wife for no other reason than that she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. Simple as that. The man needs no other reason than finding something objectionable about her. Then he can send her out of the house. What happens to her is not his concern. The rabbinic debate on this passage from Deuteronomy reveals how brutal this law could be depending on who interpreted it. While the Pharisaic school of Shammai seems to have agreed with Jesus, another Pharisaic school stated that a man could divorce his wife for minor matters, including burning or oversalting his food. And one rabbi even declared that a man could divorce his wife even for the reason of finding another woman more physically attractive. But Jesus puts an end to the practice of arbitrary divorce, a significant step in curtailing the power of men over women. In the new society, Jesus declares, women cannot be tossed aside. They are not mere property. In the passages that we have looked at in this episode, Jesus urges reconciliation and solidarity between peasants and between men and women. In the next episode, we will examine the rest of chapter 5 in which Jesus continues to build a culture of solidarity in the movement and suggests that this ethos of love and solidarity not only builds a strong movement, but can shame and defeat their oppressors. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.